Welcome to the Morning News Podcast for Thursday, May 21st. We begin with a look at the impact COVID-19 will have on our school system. From classroom sizes, increased cleaning, and even the challenges when it comes to students socially distancing, we'll speak with the University of Waterloo prof on what we can expect. Next, we get a breakdown of the newly announced Federal Commercial Rent Relief Program aimed at helping businesses make ends meet during the pandemic. Global News Chief Political Correspondent David Aiken has the details and why the program is facing a fair amount of criticism. Should we be concerned about the safety of our water supply as a result of the coronavirus? We speak with the University of Alberta water expert for details on a research project that aims to test wastewater for the presence of COVID-19. During the past few months, we've been checking in with a Canadian student living in Italy to talk to her about how that country has been faring during the pandemic. We touch base with Taylor Lay for an update and hear details on how she's lacing up her running shoes to give back to the community. And finally, we break down the announcement from the CFL yesterday on a potential plan to salvage the 2020 season. Dave Rowe gives us his thoughts on the plausibility of seeing live football this year. 709 on the morning news. Teachers in masks, classroom sizes reduced, spray bottles of sanitizer ready for little hands at doorways. Schools will look very different come September, but is it possible to keep young kids distant and clean? We are joined by social development studies professor at the University of Waterloo, Christina Llewellyn. Good morning, Christina. Good morning, Sue and Andrew. This sounds like a real uphill battle. Uh, any idea on how this is going to, to work out? Because by nature, kids want to be close together. Yeah, we're seeing a lot of experiments right now. In, of course, Canada, we're seeing that with Quebec. We have staggered arrival times. Uh, we have very small class sizes. We have more outdoor lessons. And they're using every space that they can find in schools. And even with that, parents are often making the choice not to send their kids to school. I mean, it's not just the, the classroom. It's the playground, too, right? I mean, that's where they spend a big chunk of their day out there, hanging out with their friends, playing their games. It's, it's pretty hard to say, oh, but you've got to be two meters apart. That's right. And we really try to cultivate in young people a lot of emotional and social learning skills. And that's very interactive. Some of the best education that we do is very active and creative in the processes. And so teachers have cultivated that in students, and that's led to really good learning. And some of the concern is then we're going to revert back to some more traditional ways of learning that are are not as positive for young people. Do you think there's a possibility we still might see a half-decent online component uh, just to combat uh, something like this? Or maybe some of the kids will be online some days and other kids in the school physically? We know that there's a lot of proposals going around right now, um, especially for Alberta. They're considering, considering some blended learning possibilities. I think whatever plan is put in place, it's very important that this is not a plan that's only put in place by politicians. Mm-hmm. It's something that has to be done in consultation with health professionals, but most importantly, it has to be put in place with consultation with educators and parents. They're the ones who have to implement this and support it so they feel safe with schools with, uh, with their students returning, but also so that there can be effective of learning and it's teachers who know best about what that is for the diverse learners in their classrooms. It's going to be interesting too to see you know as we look at other provinces particularly but the hand washing and the hand sanitizer how often is that happening do you send the kids out at regular intervals to wash their hands kind of thing? 
Yeah, so in Quebec, as well as in Denmark, we're hearing reports of there being bells ringing every two hours. And then all the students take a break and in staggered form, they go and wash their hands. And then there's hand sanitizer available in between that. I do think that's very important. So play-based learning at the in the youngest grade levels is extremely important. And so you're sharing materials, you're touching everything. And, and that will be an issue. But it will also be an issue for school boards to have the resources to provide for more cleaning staff. So we know that there's been a lot of cuts to education and especially when it comes to support staff in schools, but we're going to need actually more caretaking staff within our schools. Christina, the educational component and the discipline of uh, going to class, being there on time, that's one part. But the social aspect, really, school is where we learn to interact with others, maybe, you know, uh, take on conflicts that occur, you know, in relationships. That is going to take a bit of an impact, isn't it? It is. And so I think we need to prioritize connection over curriculum. I think we get into a lot of uh, problems when we think of curriculum or we think of school as just checking off the boxes of content. What we actually want young people to learn is relationship skills, thinking skills that they can apply in various ways. So no matter what happens, whether it's physical distancing in schools or whether we're going to have to continue some kind of remote emergency teaching, we need to make sure that we build on connection, we continue to humanize education. And there are ways that we could see that as an opportunity for schools. So if you had more outdoor education, that's uh, actually shown to be very effective for young people. It's very experiential learning, and that might allow for the physical distancing. If we allow for more personalized instruction, so we actually have smaller class sizes where teachers can address the needs of students, that's actually a better benefit. Smaller class sizes though that makes staffing issues then become a problem too. We're hearing you know here in Alberta it's a problem with cuts to education but if you want to have smaller class sizes that would mean you'd need more teachers in the school wouldn't you? Absolutely. And that's what's happening where I am in Ontario, as well as what's happened in Alberta. There have been cuts to the number of teachers. There's been an increase in class sizes over the years, and especially in recent uh, labor disputes. And that's going to be a serious problem if you actually want to implement any kind of plan that's going to allow for physical distancing. We might even need to use up every space within the school. And then you're going to need not only more teachers, but you need more educational assistance as well and other kinds of support staff. even been looking at examples internationally where they're using different community spaces. They're using old churches. In Denmark, they were even using an old amusement park, which might have actually been really wonderful for (laughs) young people. Um, But you do need all sorts of more adults and personnel and expertise, and that means more resources. Also, we haven't touched on this, the the classroom aspect from you know, 8, 8.30 in the morning till 3 in the afternoon, that's one thing. But the extracurricular, the clubs, the sports, these are also areas that uh, could take a hit as we move to September. I think that's right. And I think that there are some things that will be a loss. And we can't pretend that even any return will be the normal that we're used to. And so those kind of losses have to be recognized. And the loss of those kind of extracurricular activities could actually take a mental health toll on young people. And so mental health professionals and supports will be very important as well. Absolutely. I was just going to say that. And in fact, we got a, a texter saying, you know, these distancing rules are going to backfire over the lifetime of a child too. It, how will it affect our kids? There, You know, there are going to be so many rules put in place. Place and, and they have to be so conscious and worried about everything they do when we're trying to make the learning environment these days, you know, that much more easygoing. Does all that get pulled back? 
Yes, and I think we'll see what the long-term impact is over the years for this generation. I mean, we're already starting to define them as the COVID kids. Um, so what will that impact be over the long term? We, we won't know. But I think in the short term, we have to actually be looking for those signs for young people if they're in some mental health struggles, and we need to provide those supports. But to a certain extent, because we didn't go through this experience, it's not normal to us. And, you know, obviously we have concerns as parents and uh, community members. To the kids that are going through this, this will be their normal. This will be all they know, right? And I think listening to young people. So we often talk about wanting to get feedback from parents, wanting to get feedback from educators around what learning looks like and what the impact is, but really listening to young people. So there was a recent survey done by Angus Reid of young people from 10 to 17 in which they were expressing how unmotivated they are. And one of the big things they talked about was just how much they are missing their friends. So we need to hear what is the greatest concern and how can we mitigate those concerns from young people hearing from them well education moving forward could look very different will be uh, it'll be a wait and see game for sure thanks for joining us though christina with your uh, your perceptions thank you so much Sue and andrew that's christina llewellyn social development studies prof at the university of waterloo Coming up to 649 on the morning news, the federal government announced uh, details Wednesday of a commercial rent relief program to help businesses survive the pandemic. Our chief political correspondent, David Aiken, joins us now to take a look at that. And David, this program has uh, more than a couple of critics. Oh, yeah. It's been under fire ever since uh, the prime minister announced it a couple of weeks ago. Here's how it works. The program is a commercial rent relief program for, for small business owners who, who were told to shut down and haven't had any revenue for a couple of months, and they still got to pay the rent. But here's the thing. It's landlords who have to apply for this program. The news yesterday, landlords can start applying on May the 25th. So mark that down. And by the way, the uh, the relief will be retroactive for April, May, and for the June rent. So landlords apply May 25th. But here's what they're applying for. They're applying for a forgivable loan mm-hmm. that allows uh, of up to 50% of the tenant's rent. Now, the tenant still has to pay 25%. And the landlords got to essentially eat 25%. So a lot of landlords are saying, why would I apply for a program where I'm guaranteed to lose 25%? I just might as well just say, hey, tenant, you owe me the full 100%. So a lot of the opposition MPs, a lot of business groups are saying, let's reverse this. Let's get the tenants to apply for the relief, not the landlords. Mm. Uh, not Doesn't seem to be there'll be a change on that just yet. Uh, the prime minister, though, saying to landlords, landlords, it's in your vested interest to make sure your small business tenants get through this thing. Yep. So still a lot of uh, squawking on that file. For sure, better to have somebody than nobody in your building, whatever it might be. It makes sense. Uh, let's talk masks, David, because we learned yesterday that uh, the PM is wearing a mask when he goes out and he's in, mm-hmm. in close proximity to anybody. And then stronger language coming from the chief public health officer as well. That's right. So Dr. Teresa Tam had said wearing a mask was suggested. That was her word. Now it's recommended. And she has made this decision in consultation with all provincial medical officers of health, including Dr. Hinshaw in Alberta. And um, and she says the science is evolving here. And we don't know enough about how the virus transmits from healthy people or seemingly healthy people, people who are asymptomatic. We know they do transmit it. We don't know how. So this is an added value of protection when you wear the mask. You're protecting people around you. So the the recommendation now is wear it if you 
can't maintain a two-meter distance. Now, she was also asked, why not make it mandatory? Why not tell everybody in the country, you got to wear a mask? And she says, uh, Dr. Tam says, this is best left to local officers of health. So let's say Calgary was having a terrible outbreak. Maybe in Calgary, there's a mandatory wear a mask mm-hmm. order in Calgary. Right. There is a mandatory order. If you get on a plane, Transport Canada says, got to wear the mask. We could see transit operators say, you want to take uh, public transit? Got to wear a mask. We're not there yet. It's still recommended to wear a mask. And finally, David, it looks like the Prime Minister has resumed Canada's campaign to win a seat on the United Nations Security Council. What's been the reaction to that? Well, it's an interesting reaction. There was a petition started up a couple of days ago from some progressive left-leaning types. David Suzuki of the, uh, you know, the environmentalist. Roger Waters, the, you know, from Pink Floyd, the basis from Pink Floyd, saying... Canada should not get on the, the, the Security Council. Canada is an environmental bad actor. Canada sponsors military missions in Iraq, etc. Canada supports Maduro in Venezuela. And for all these reasons, the left doesn't like the idea of Canada getting on the Security Council. So there's a petition with, as I said, Roger Waters and David Suzuki, hundreds, hundred others. The Prime Minister responded to this saying, it's more important than ever that Canada is on the Security Council because he says post-pandemic, there's going to be, the world's going to change. The world's going to change the way the world changed after World War II. Mm-hmm. It's going to be that significant. And he thinks Canada best be at the table for that. So he's still campaigning. He's meeting with, virtually with some Asia-Pacific countries today, met with some Eastern European leaders uh, earlier in the week. He's phoning a world leaders having one-on-one. The vote is next month. It's Ireland, Norway, and Canada trying for two spots on the Security Council. Mm, we'll be following that for sure. Thanks for the update, David. Thanks, guys. Cheers. That's David Aiken, Chief Political Correspondent with Global News. 719 on your Thursday morning. Our next guest leading the charge to test for coronavirus at Canada's water treatment plants. Could COVID-19 be living in our wastewater? We're joined by University of Alberta water expert Steve Rudy. Hi, Steve. Hi. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. So is the water being tested right now? Uh, there are uh, various groups we're talking to across Canada that are, uh, have collected samples and are uh, testing out the uh, analytical methods necessary to detect coronavirus. Uh, we don't have the full program up and running. Uh, we're basically talking to uh, uh, governments at various levels uh, trying to secure uh, funding to uh, support a full-blown pilot so would this be something that, you know, it would just get into the wastewater or would this be the result of uh, people who have had the coronavirus, you know, literally adding it to the wastewater? It's the latter. Uh, basically, uh, there, there's ample evidence that people who are infected with coronavirus uh, will shed uh, coronavirus in their feces, which means uh, down the toilet and into the sewer. So that uh, a sample collected at, uh, at the wastewater plant basically collects a composite sample from the entire population on that sewer system. That's really gross, um, but <laughs> it is important that we know because we're learning as we go along so much about this virus and, and how it might possibly be spread. Are you hearing from the, the uh, scientific world as to what this might possibly look like going forward? Yes, and so the important thing, and particularly for people working at the plants, uh, the evidence that's available suggests what can be detected at the wastewater plant is not infective, uh, certainly no more infective than uh, what there's uh, ample uh, enteric pathogens in uh, in sewage already. 
Uh, so caution needs to be uh, uh, pursued in, uh, at the plant to avoid exposure to all those other pathogens that are already there. Um, essentially, what we're looking for is uh, an indication of the level, uh, the prevalence of infection in the community uh, as this composite sample. So it's not just, uh, you know, curiosity. We're looking uh, to try and gather evidence that can help inform the public health decision makers about uh, a different way of finding out uh, the level of prevalence in the community. COVID-19 is is new to all of us, but uh, can we assume, you mentioned other pathogens in wastewater, can we assume that these things are tested quite frequently for different pathogens and uh, different items that would be of concern? Actually, no. Uh, uh, There uh, has been work done uh, during drinking water outbreaks. uh, uh, You know, way back in 2001, we had an outbreak in North Battleford, Saskatchewan uh, of cryptosporidium. And uh, uh, researchers were able to find that in the wastewater at the time of the outbreak. Mm-hmm. Uh, similarly, in, in 2010, uh, in Austria and Sweden, uh, during a crypto outbreak, uh, we could find it in the wastewater. Uh, people have done studies uh, for the WHO uh, monitoring for polio virus uh, in areas where polio is still common uh, to see the effectiveness of vaccination programs. But routinely, no, it's, uh, it's not something that's been uh, regularly done. But given the, the uh, challenges we're now facing, uh, this is something that seems to have merit. Well, we'll be uh, we'll follow up with you. I mean, as as the testing continues, maybe we'll check in with you and and see the results that you've you've gotten so far to find out if that is something that will be a concern as we move forward. Thanks for joining us, Steve. Okay, you're welcome. That's Steve Rudy, University of Alberta water expert. 609 on the morning news in Italy. Shops, salons and restaurants finally opened their doors on Monday as the country sped up efforts to bounce back from the coronavirus crisis after a 10-week lockdown. This morning, we're checking in with our voice there to hear what life is like and to hear about fundraising efforts she's taking part in currently. We're joined by Taylor Lay, a Canadian student studying in Italy. Good morning to you, Taylor. Good morning. How are you doing today? Good. Thank you for taking the time. We've enjoyed, uh, you know, your updates over the past, well, basically two months now. I'm wondering what life is like now with these openings that we're hearing about from earlier this week. Absolutely. Um, I, From what I understand, you know, we're, we're seeing photos of kind of a really busy, really full of life Italy right now back home. And that's exactly the case. So there's tons of Um, tons of, I think, relief in the air almost. And, you know, there are lots of people going to bars and aperitivo and, you know, going shopping. And while it's all still socially distanced and with many safety measures in place, um, it's definitely feeling like a much more lively place. I bet. I mean, anyone who's seen pictures or been to Italy, it's about the outdoor restaurants and cafes. So those are all finally open. Are are, are people just, as you say, you know, separated? Do they just have fewer tables? Is that kind of the look? Because that's what we want when we we think Italy, right? Exactly, yeah. So uh, the tables are further apart um, and people are actually measuring them. You know, on my morning runs, I've been seeing people actually measure the distance between tables and chairs. Um, also, some restaurants are doing putting plexiglass between where people sit so that mm. they can have smaller tables. Um, so really, really, a lot of measures are being taken so that people can enjoy the same or similar lifestyle that they're used to. 
I'm not sure where you're at in the school year. Maybe you, you'd be done by this point anyway, but I'm wondering um, how uh, educational uh, institutions are uh, doing at this point. Are, are the regular schools back? And, and how about you and your studies? Are you able to physically go to uh, the uh, university at this point? No. So um, my understanding is that all schools will be will remain closed until September, um, but exceptions are being made for some exams. Um, so some people are able to, you know, if you're graduating from university this year or if you're graduating from high school, there are certain circumstances in which you can book an exam. I believe only one student at a time, although I would have to check to make sure that's correct. Um, but it's definitely scheduled in advance and only a select few people are allowed to go back before September. Um, and then for myself, I'm fortunate because everything's just transferred to online. So it's been quite easy. Mm. Taylor, wondering what it's like in terms of masks. Are people wearing masks throughout Italy now? Because just here in Canada, as of yesterday, uh, it's now encouraged mm. that Canadians start to wear masks when they're mm. in an area where they, they may be close to people. Here, it's absolutely imperative. Um, and the fines are quite high. I don't recall exactly what. Um, but no, if you're, if you're seen without wearing a mask, you can be fined, um, and will be fined. And it's the same thing, I believe with social distancing measures. Um, so if you, if you're, you know, with too many people or not maintaining those social distancing measures, you're, you will be fined. Um, and then if you're doing so at a business, the business will also be fined and shut down indefinitely. Now that, uh, you know, the reopening is happening and, uh, you're, uh, it sounds like Italy has made it through the uh, the peak of the coronavirus uh, season there. We're hoping so. Uh, yeah, yeah, fingers no crossed. Uh, you're looking to give back, and there are uh, certain fundraisers, one that you're attached to. Tell us about it. Absolutely, yeah. Um, so when I was kind of thinking of ways that, you know, it might be possible to help, my heart was really with the families and particularly young families and elderly people who may be struggling financially or with their health right now. Um, because, you know, this is a time of huge, huge need for people here in Northern Italy, particularly. Um, so I did some research and found two, that two charities that are local to Lombardy um, are really prominent, prominent charities that serve those in need here. Bimbo Kiama Bimbo, which serves families and children, provides food, meals, um, clothing, toys, educational programs, and childcare, um, as well as La Croce Bianca Brescia. Um, which serves, provides low-cost medical support as well as food and meal services for those in need. Um, so I have decided to run a solo marathon um, in support of those charities. Good for you. Okay, so, you know, obviously yeah. going through something like this, Italy is your home away from mm-hmm. home. And, and, you know, I think it brings people tight, closer together and, you know, a tighter-knit community for sure. So you're doing something to help out your home away from home. How can we help? Tell us about how we might be able to donate to, uh, to this a marathon that you've decided to do. Yeah. Um, you're so crazy, first of all. I, have, I Absolutely. I'm telling myself that every day, too. Um, so I have a GoFundMe set up. It's called Solo Marathon for Lombardy Charities. So you can look that up on GoFundMe. Um, and any donation would help from $1 to $5. Anything that you can give would really, really be a gratefully accepted contribution. But, of course, not everyone can give at this time, particularly mm-hmm. right now. I know that times are so financially uncertain. Um, so I'm going to be sharing my journey to training for a marathon and getting back in shape after two months of being a couch potato. <laughs> Um, and I'll be doing so on my website, and all proceeds from my website will also be given to those charities between now and July 26th. 
So if you'd like to visit my website too, it's www.taelorlay.com. Um, starting Monday, I'll be sharing my training tips and ways to get back in shape as well. Are you finding, I mean, this is something that you're very much behind and passionate about. Are you finding there's a lot of this going on in Italy now that uh, things are starting to calm? Um, I think so, but I also think that, you know, a lot of people here already volunteer. So a lot of people are already enrolled in working for these, um, like volunteering for these uh, charities. And a lot of people are also just trying to get back on their feet. I think it's a time where, you know, these people were so hard hit that, it's, we're not quite yet at the point where it's a matter of looking at how we can give back as much as it is. How do we just get back up and running? How do we get back on our feet? How do we restart the economy? How do we, you know, attend the funerals that we have and uh, and kind of make sure that everything gets back to normal? Well, Taylor, we'll put up uh, all this information on our social media pages. So uh, people who've been tuning in and listening to you, kind of giving us an update of, of what we could expect here in Canada since Italy was, you know, that much farther ahead through the pandemic. Uh, we'll put that up on our social media pages. Maybe people can help out your GoFundMe page and uh, to say thanks for all the help you've given us. And Andy Thank and I are going to so pool our pennies and we'll uh, we'll drop a donation in there for you too. So thanks for oh joining gosh, us. Thank you. And thank you for doing what you've been doing. We always appreciate your updates. Thank you so much. Take care. You too. That is uh, Taylor Lay, a Canadian student in Italy. And again, her website is taylor, T-A-E-L-O-R-L-A-Y dot com. 749 results of an independent financial and governance review of the Calgary Board of Education coming later this morning. The education minister ordering the provincial audit late last year said the CBE, quote, was uh, using reckless misuse of taxpayer dollars. So joining us with a, a little look ahead as we get prepared to hear this report is Global News reporter Lauren Pullen. Hi, Lauren. Good morning, Sue. Thanks so much for joining us. So we know when the review was called, the minister said there was a clear pattern of mismanagement. Are we expecting this to be a potentially explosive report? You know, there's been a lot of contention uh, surrounding this throughout the entire time. So I wouldn't doubt that there are some big moves that are going to be made. I want to take a step back just to uh, talk about what actually prompted this from the minister to begin with. And it was all after the UCP ended up tabling its budget last fall. The uh, CBE responded saying that it would have to lay off 300 temporary teachers in order to uh, deal with what it called a $32 million shortfall from that budget because it did change the funding model as, as we remember and it was late in the year so they said they were going to have to do that and come January those teachers were not going to have jobs anymore and as you can imagine that ruffled the feathers mm. of not only the government but of course parents, students rallied outside of their classroom saying hey I don't want to be losing my teacher uh, midway through the year I don't want to be losing my teacher at all so right away Adriana Lagrange did respond and she came out firing as you mentioned some of the things that she said is the reckless misuse of taxpayer dollars by this board cannot be allowed to continue. There's a clear pattern of mismanagement by this board that must be corrected. And that is when she called for this uh, review of both finances and the governance of the board. Again, we're waiting uh, till later this morning, I think in the next hour, uh, 90 minutes or so, we should have some uh, clarity as to as to what the findings were. Uh, but it's very interesting because we spoke with CBE Chair Marilyn Dennis a couple of days ago on the morning news, who uh, didn't have too much to say. Of course, she did let us know that the release of their budget would be uh, done by May 31st. So I'm thinking that we can assume there'll be some fireworks passed today between the CBE and the government. 
Yeah, I can imagine there's going to be a very vocal response to this. If you remember uh, back when this kind of all laid out on the line, Marilyn actually got pretty emotional at, at one of the meetings and, and was is struggling to hold back the tears saying, you know, we are going to open up our books and open up all of our uh, members of the CBE to be able to talk to you openly and honestly and get to the bottom of all this. But it definitely has hit a nerve with every single person involved. And then we know back in January when the trustee resigned saying there was secrecy and non-democratic processes going on. So, I mean, there's there's been a lot coming from the inside, a lot from the outside. I think this do they have the potential to just fire the whole board? Uh, that's a very, a very big question uh, that we are awaiting answers. But, you know, with the statements that LaGrange has said, obviously something big needs to change for, from her end of things. And, and we're going to have to see what the auditor did find when it looked at all of its findings within the books and within talking to people on the board. But as you mentioned, it was uh, one of the trustees, uh, sorry, one of the people on the CBE, Lisa Davis, who resigned after making those allegations. She didn't specifically uh, come out and say exactly what prompted the move, but it did happen after a motion was passed by the board where she said there wasn't enough or there wasn't any public information on, so she didn't feel comfortable being a part of of that board anymore and some people did kind of see that as the last card falling uh, because she was one of the members who was all about the fiscal responsibility on top of the decisions and uh, she left because she didn't feel like like that was happening thanks for your time this morning lauren i guess we'll be well all eyes on uh, yep. about uh, quarter to nine this morning for that release we appreciate it thank you that is global news reporter lauren pullen 819 on the morning news and uh, great to talk live with uh, Dave Rowe. He used to be in the studio with us. Now he's working Who? from the Glen. What? Uh, oh, yeah. <laughs> what's the name of your studio? Glenbrook? It's the, uh, the Glen, it had okay. been the Glenbrook Sports Bureau, but it's now the Glenbrook Sports World Headquarters. Complex. Because a uh, bureau, it's just like it wasn't big enough just to encompass everything that's going on. I like campus because doesn't Google have a campus? Yeah, um, there you go. Also good. So many different details and pieces of information coming out from the CFL yesterday as they grapple to salvage the season. So many uncertainties, but I guess well, let's start with the most certain one, which is we will not be seeing a Grey Cup uh, in Saskatchewan uh, this year. Yeah, and just uh, like while we get started here, I mean, I had to uh, applaud CFL Commissioner Randy Ambrosi. Mm-hmm. I mean, he had the two announcements to make. But, you know, basically the two announcements he made yesterday were uh, the Grey Cup not happening in Regina and the touchdown Atlantic game canceled. But, you know, he's been pretty quiet of late. Uh, the last time he was in public didn't go so well. Appearing before that finance committee, it was, uh, you know, it was negative. It was not well received. Uh, yesterday, I, I thought Randy got out front. He was projecting a more positive image of talking about getting back to play in September. The, you know, the possibility of having fans in the stands. And making that address to the fans, because, you know, so much of the debate around sports has been, oh, we'll get sports back with no fans. We'll play these games with no fans. You know, Randy Ambrosi, the event yesterday was a season ticket holders town hall. You know, like media were invited to dial into it, but it was directed at the fans. The fans were included. The fans were driving the bus asking all the questions. But it did come down to the news announcements. And, uh, you know, the, the Grey Cup... It makes so much sense, you know, moving it to 2022, because just with all the logistics, all the expense of putting together a Grey Cup, uh, of putting together a Grey Cup festival, yeah. basically tying up every hotel room in, in southern Saskatchewan. I mean, you don't know. You, you know, you can't say with certainty that the game's going to be played, and you can't say even if the game is played that anyone's going to be allowed to watch it. So, you know, you know, giving you know, sort of Regina the pass, 
on having to put up all of that money and you know tie up all of those uh, all of those facilities it just made sense right now it really does so uh, dave looking ahead this is all if and speculation of course but yeah. so if the games go ahead how like how do we play a gray cup game then so the uh, what they're going to do is uh, the two, they're, they're, they're obviously going to be two gray cup finalists whichever gray cup finalist has the best record will become the host of the Grey Cup. I mean, okay. obviously that means that, you know, there won't be a Grey Cup festival like, you know, what we saw this year. But, you know, but again, but with all the uncertainty, there can't be a Grey Cup festival. You know, you're still going to have time to throw together, you know, some festivities, some fun, uh, you know, get a convention center party hall going uh, if, if gatherings like that uh, are, are allowed. But I think this is the best case scenario for the Grey Cup right now. Lots of ifs, Dave, even in the releases that we've been reading. So, I guess it's just a time will tell, or is there some kind of a kill date uh, that was thrown around? I think you know you have to be you, you're starting to run out of runway here. You know you have to consider the fact that you know you've got to get uh, even if you're starting if you're starting on Labor Day, then you know let's back time that. You need a training camp. I would say minimum three weeks of a training camp, so that takes you into the first week of July. You know, if you you're going to be getting players across the border. And I don't think that's going to be a problem because, you know, these, you know, essential workers, no, but workers with work permits and papers, yes, absolutely. You know, the NHL is not anticipating problems getting them across, so neither would the CFL. But if you're going to have a 14-day quarantine, all of a sudden that backs you up into the third week of June. So to give guys, you know, a chance to get together, to get organized, to get plane tickets, uh, I think, you know, you're getting into uh, probably – the the first week of June, maybe the the tenth or of June is going to have to be your drop dead date. Yes or no? Is there a CFL season in twenty twenty? Uh, I just the, the optimist, yes or no. The, the optimist in me says yes. Okay, good, excellent. Thanks, Dave. We'll uh, we'll be watching to see what happens for sure and checking in with you. Thanks for joining us. Anytime. We miss you. CHQR Sports Guy Dave Rowe. Applied Pharmaceutical Innovation has partnered up with Edmonton-based Riverford Productions to develop a documentary series on drug development in Canada. The series is called Drugs, a One-Swallow Treatment for a Misunderstood Industry. Joining us is award-winning producer Les Sarita. Hi, Les. Hey, how are you? Excellent. Thank you so much for joining us. I've watched the trailer. It's some fascinating stuff and really very timely for a documentary series focusing on drug development in Canada. Tell us a little bit about the series itself. Well, you know, we've, we've been looking at the industry for quite a while. And, and I started off, you know, very simply, you know, we walked into a, a drugstore and looked at the shelf and, and we saw Tylenol and acetaminophen in there. And, and, and you know, all of us had this confusion over you know, which to buy. And uh, and that led to a lot more questions about the industry. And the industry is a global business with billion-dollar budgets and, and life-saving research and, and really has some of the most stringent uh, regulations that there are. And Canada's really, you know, and Alberta specifically, is in a really unique situation to become a, a global leader within it. And and we we just wanted to dig further into this and, and tell some of these stories. Les, we, we don't really think about where the drugs come from that we take on a daily basis, uh, but clearly we need to start thinking about that uh, if we want to uh, grow the industry. 
Well, we do. And and one of the misconceptions that are out there are one of the lack of understanding that's out there. Take, take for example, the antibiotics that we use on a daily basis. Well, between 80 to 90 percent of, of those drugs that are produced are, are produced in, in China and in India. And, you know, for whatever reason, if that supply uh, stopped, we'd be in a lot of trouble. And and Canada and, and the people that we're talking to in Alberta are really taking a hard look at this and figuring out how can we, you know, be leaders within the global industry and really take care of our people here at home in Canada. Les, where is Canada's place in this global marketplace when it comes to drug development? Well, you know, we, we aren't really uh, a big leaders in the manufacturing section, like I just said, but from the development side, you know, here in Alberta, we have got some of the leaders in the world about about research and development. And API, uh, Applied Pharmaceutical Innovation, is uniquely placed. They are like a one-of-a-kind company in the world, um, and they're trying to be that bridge really between industry and research and trying to, to make connections uh, between two of those to help uh, share their expertise and, and bring some of this stuff to, to market. Now, it's you know, it's a growing industry, um, but it's really well placed. I mean, we all know uh, in Canada, oil and gas is, you know, is king. Um, but the pharmaceutical industry is placed really well to, to bring some diversification to the economy. Um, and, uh, and, and Canada could be a great leader in this regard. Can you tell us uh, about more of the projects happening in Alberta? Because I think that, yeah, we're, we're thought of as the oil and gas, but uh, I did not even realize that uh, we had uh, some progress being made in our province. Well, for example, uh, one of the companies uh, that, that we've been working and chatting with is, is Hepion Pharmaceuticals and, uh, and Robert Foster, and, and they are on the verge of, of releasing a drug for lupus nephritis. Uh, so that was a homegrown company. They've been working on this for over 20 years, uh, started in his garage. Uh, and, and they're, you know, I mean, to me, this is, this is Alberta. This is, uh, this is how, how we work, this entrepreneurship of, of building small companies and building up and, and fighting for it and, you know, <laughs> pulling up by your bootstraps. Uh, they're, they're a great example of that. And that's, that's really what's going on in Alberta to a great extent and and these are the stories that that we're trying to tell can you explain to us a little bit why uh, it takes so long to move forward with a a lab discovery to the point where it becomes an actual viable medication for patients does it take longer in canada than other countries um that's a great question you know i can't really speak to what other countries are doing but but this industry, you know, has very stringent regulations. And obviously, um, you know, as we're, we're seeing, unfortunately, with our, with our current pandemic and the research for a vaccine and the timelines we're talking, um, you know, it, it's not straight from a lab, you know, into your local pharmacy. Uh, there's, there's many phases of testing that needs to go on and, and needs to ensure that, that these medicines, as they're developed, are, are truly safe for us. So, uh, you know, this is, again, one of the misconceptions that's out there in the industry um, and why, you know, why things, you know, why budgets are as big as they are and why timelines are what they are, uh, you know, are really about those regulations and really ensuring that these products, by the time they make it to us in our homes, are, are really safe for us to consume. Les, who, who would you like to see as the audience for this documentary series? Well, I, I think the audience is all of us, frankly. Um, you know, we, drugs are part of our lives you know, for, for better or for worse. 
and and I don't think the average person really knows. You know, we take a lot of things because we're told to take them, mm-hmm. but but where do they come from? You know, how are they produced? Why are we buying this one and not that one? Uh, you, you know, so so it impacts all of us, and and you know we're we're trying to do this with a little bit of uh, humor as well. We're trying to uh, we're we're going to hire a host that will will have an innate sense of of curiosity and humor to guide us through this process and talk to scientists and help them convey the work that they're doing, uh, you know, in, in order to entertain us and, you know, help us learn something, uh, you know, through viewing these episodes. And, you know, and there's lots of talk federally. We're talking about, you know, buying pharmaceuticals from China, and that's got a lot of people really up in arms at this point with what's happening with the pandemic. Do you answer any questions in this documentary series about sort of that big pharma, big business kind of conversation? Well, we will. And, 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 you know, our focus is here in Alberta because that's where we're from. Um, Edmonton and Calgary will, will both be highly focused. But, but this industry is global and big pharma is part of this conversation. And, you know, small pharma and big pharma need to work together. Um, so, yeah, we, we need to ask all those questions and, and why things are the way they are. Uh, and and find those answers. I don't have all those answers today. That's that's going to be part of our journey is is to find those answers and share them as as we learn them. Les, where can we check it out? Uh, if you can go to our website right now at riverfort.ca, uh, there is information there, and uh, we'll be adding to that as we continue to ve- develop the idea. Thank you so much for your time. We appreciate it. Hey, thank you so much, Les Sarita, producer with Riverford Productions.